Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Hugh. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. It has been a big fortnight in the world's news, but we'll do our best to recap it. Me from my house here in Melbourne. And me from a hostel. Uh, We're bringing the podcast to you from the road today, but that's all right. Hopefully there aren't too many difficulties. We'll see how we go. Let's get into it. Abiy Ahmed has joined his government forces on the battlefront with the aim of vanquishing rebels who have been making steady gains against Ethiopia's national defense forces. State media in Ethiopia reported that Abiy, a former soldier, has gone to direct the war from the front line, but did not elaborate on where exactly he went. So Joshua, a few months ago, we discussed the situation in Ethiopia, specifically the conflict between the Ethiopian government and a rebel force known as the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. And since we cover that story, a lot has taken place. As you would have just heard, Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, has actually gone to the front lines to fight the rebels himself. Now, according to government press statements, he's literally providing battlefield military leadership, despite being the nation's Prime Minister. And at the same time, he's called on all able-bodied citizens to join the fight to defend the nation against what he calls a rebel takeover. He's actually said that we are, quote, in the final stages of saving Ethiopia. That is a pretty stark warning. In fact, I don't think they come any more stark than that. Well, to put it bluntly, the situation in Ethiopia has changed a lot since the last time we discussed it on the wrap-up. You see, the TPLF is the military arm of the Tigrayan ethnic group in Ethiopia's north. And back in March, the TPLF was on the defensive. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has announced that the military operations in the northern Tigray province have been completed. That the Ethiopian Prime Minister declared victory in the Tigray region after three weeks of intense fighting. But since then, the Ethiopian military has lost momentum. After months of conflict, the rebel fighters in the Tigray region of Ethiopia have recaptured the regional capital of Mekele from the Ethiopian government forces. This signals a crucial turning point in that eight-month-long civil war. Some say this was due to alleged war crimes committed against Tigrayan citizens, and people are saying that this emboldened the TPLF and provided them with fresh volunteers, while others explain the turnaround by pointing to military decisions taken by both sides. But either way, the TPLF has managed to link up with rebel forces from other ethnicities, and together they've launched a major counterattack, and this combined attack is now closing in on Ethiopia's capital city, Addis Ababa. Ethiopia has declared a nationwide state of emergency. Residents of Addis Ababa have been ordered to prepare to defend their neighborhoods, and this comes amid fears that rebels were heading for the capital. So there are now fears that the TPLF could literally topple the Ethiopian government, and that explains why Abiy and his supporters are so eager to drive the Tigrayans back. Yeah, what a turnaround. So have there been any efforts to stop the violence, though, or to reach a ceasefire? Yes, there have been efforts to stop the violence, both at an international and a regional level, Uh, but the conflict is moving so much faster than mediation efforts, and so it's been really hard for diplomats to keep up. And really, that makes sense when we remember that both sides are now fighting for the heart and soul of the Ethiopian nation, so international mediation looks like it might be off the cards for a while. 
Oh, that's not really what we want to hear because there's a very real human cost for every day the conflict drags on, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And tragically, look, the conflict has cost a lot of lives so far. And it's even provoked a regional famine uh, because rebel-held territories are being blockaded by the government. It is, according to the UN's aid chief, the worst food crisis anywhere in the world in a decade. Some 350,000 people are in famine conditions in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Several nations, including Australia, have instructed their citizens to leave the country. And the UN has even pulled family members of its staff out as well after some UN staff were detained by the Ethiopian government. So clearly the situation is at a knife edge. And with the way things stand at the moment, the international community is going to need to move very decisively to force the TPLF to stop its advance and also to push the Ethiopian government to hold off on escalating the situation any further than it already has. Australian soldiers are on their way to the crisis-hit Solomon Islands as a third day of violence and looting spread across the capital. Authorities on the ground fired tear gas at protesters today. Locals say the Australian help can't come soon enough. Hugh, as we speak, over 100 Australian police officers and soldiers are attempting to calm chaotic riots in the Solomon Islands. What started as a peaceful protest in the country's capital, Honiara, quickly turned violent last week. The protesters demanded that the country's PM resign, and when he refused to do so, they tried to storm the nation's parliament. Buildings on the main island of Guadalcanal were set on fire. Shops, police stations, a high school, a bank and the country's parliament have been set alight. And at least three people were killed by those fires. In response, the national government declared a curfew and asked for help from the Australian military. And on Thursday last week, Scott Morrison agreed to mobilise Defence Force. Uh, earlier this afternoon, I received a formal request from the Prime Minister and the Australian Government has agreed to respond to that request. By Friday, planes carrying Australian soldiers had touched down in the Solomons. So I guess we'd all be wondering what prompted the anger and why a protest is demanding that the country's Prime Minister step down. Really, there are two main causes here. So firstly, these protests can be traced back to years of conflict between the islands that make up the Solomons. And on that point, in fact, have a guess, Hugh, how many islands do you think make up the country? Mm, I'm going to highball you and say 400. Well, it's actually a little bit more than that. Believe it or not, nearly 1,000 islands are in the Solomon Islands. And although they're all part of the same nation, there are actually significant cultural differences between them. The biggest tensions exist between the island of Malaita, which is where the majority of Solomon Islanders live, and Guadalcanal Island, which is where the capital Honiara is located. And these two islands fought a five-year civil war in the early 2000s that killed hundreds of people. 
More than 20,000 fled their homes as militias drawn from the rival Malaitan and Guadalcanal ethnic groups terrorised the population. And although the civil war ended in 2003, the underlying tensions really haven't been resolved. So just last year, the island of Malaita tried to declare independence from the rest of the Solomons. And last week's violence was really rooted in these same tensions. So the protest was organised by people from Malaita who wanted to denounce the national government on Guadalcanal. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. So you're saying that long-standing tensions, I guess, within the Solomon Islands is one of the reasons for the protests, but I guess are there any others as well? Yeah, well, the second reason concerns, interestingly enough, foreign policy, particularly the decision of the Solomon Islands government to switch allegiance from Taiwan to China. The Solomon Islands has broken its diplomatic ties with the government of Taiwan, deciding to take up relations with Beijing instead. Taiwan's described the outcome as extremely regrettable. For the last 40 years, the Solomon Islands has supported Taiwan and its claim to independence from China. But in 2019, the national government suddenly reversed course and agreed to support the One China policy. And it was subsequently discovered that that decision was made after China promised the Solomons $700 million in aid. And I'm not talking about Chinese investments here. I'm talking about Chinese bribes. The money China reportedly paid to buy influence in the Solomon Islands. Influence for what? Now, bizarrely, this actually made the tensions between the island of Malaysia and Guadalcanal even worse. So as a way to sort of show defiance to the national government, Malaita refused to recognise China and instead still maintains that Taiwan is an independent nation. And so as a result, currently, China is providing aid to the national government on Guadalcanal, while Taiwan and the US are giving aid to the island of Malaita. So in effect, the Solomons has been literally split over the question of Taiwan's sovereignty, and it was a key reason behind the protests. Well, okay. So at the start, you mentioned that the Prime Minister said he's not going to resign. Where does that leave the Solomon Islands going forward? Well, it's really uncertain. And given the history of violence in the Solomon Islands, a lot of people are really worried that another civil war could break out if calm isn't restored soon. But I think on a broader level, this crisis also perfectly illustrates the power struggle that we're seeing between the US and China. Both nations are vying for influence in the Pacific, and we're seeing similar tensions play out in Fiji, in Vanuatu, in Tonga, and even Samoa. Who these nations side with will have significant consequences at a global level in institutions like the UN, where their vote really counts. So there's a lot at stake for everyone involved here. So I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about the Pacific in the coming years. You understand that Taiwan is not run by China. Uh, we elect our own government. Uh, our president is democratically elected. Our parliament is also democratically elected. And that is the fact. Well, Joshua, as you highlighted in that last story, the issue of Taiwan's diplomatic recognition can be really impactful for real people, especially in small countries like the Solomon Islands. But it's not just in the Pacific that we're seeing Taiwan's disputed political status 
have a real world impact. At the moment, we're actually seeing the issue of Taiwan's international recognition play out across the globe in places like Europe and Central America, as well as during international summits. Okay, so give us some examples of that. In what ways is this contest for Taiwan unfolding? Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with Europe. Uh, Just recently, the Chinese government downgraded its embassy in the Eastern European nation of Lithuania, in addition to harshly criticizing Lithuania's leadership for allegedly pandering to Taiwan. And you see, Joshua, Lithuania has taken the provocative step of allowing Taiwan to open a de facto embassy in its capital of Vilnius. Taiwan will soon establish a representative office in Lithuania. On social media, President Tsai Ing-wen called the development a major diplomatic breakthrough. Back in Beijing, meanwhile, the government there sees Taiwan as just another province of the People's Republic of China, and so it views any attempt to treat Taiwan as though it were an independent state as quite a significant challenge to its rule. It's interesting, though, because Taiwan has various embassies throughout the world. So why was this particular one in Lithuania so controversial? Yeah, that's exactly right. But usually its officials are forced to use the name Chinese Taipei instead of Taiwan. But this time, Lithuania let Taiwan use its own name. The foreign minister made the announcement on Tuesday, saying it will be called the Taiwanese Representative Office in Lithuania. This mission will be the second in the world to feature the word Taiwan in its official name. And at the same time, some Lithuanian politicians have planned a visit to Taiwan where they will meet President Tsai Ing-wen. So clearly, Lithuania is signaling its strong support for Taiwan, and it doesn't seem to care too much about China's response. So that act is obviously going to draw significant retaliation from Beijing. But so did the October decision by Slovakia and Czechia, which are also in Europe, to allow the Taiwanese foreign minister to make an official visit. Minister of Foreign Affairs Joseph Wu will head to Europe on an official visit next week. Wu says the trip signals a new era in Taiwan's relations with European countries. Mm, So it sounds like Europe is cautiously siding with Taiwan here. So where else are we seeing these tensions play out? Well, beyond Europe, we've also seen the Taiwan dispute play out in the Central American nation of Honduras. Now, Honduras is one of only 15 countries that continues to recognize Taiwan. And currently, Honduras is in an election campaign. So reportedly, the US government has actually quietly sent a delegation to Honduras to ask both of the main presidential candidates not to recognize China should they win the election. So the US is effectively intervening in another country's election in order to guarantee an outcome on China and Taiwan. Yes, you could say that. Uh, You you see, at the moment, the US is wrapped up in an international campaign to protect Taiwan's diplomatic status, and we've seen that as well in the Solomon Islands. But just as equally, China is focused on convincing those last remaining countries which recognize Taiwan to switch that recognition to Beijing like the Solomon Islands did. So just as we've seen China criticize Lithuania, we've also seen the US publicly back Lithuania's political leadership. And the U.S. itself has made its own efforts to push the envelope on Taiwan. The State Department has reportedly invited Taiwan to an international virtual summit on democracy. And there, Taiwan is likely to be treated as though it were a fully-fledged state. 110 governments have been invited to Washington's first-ever democracy summit. On the list, Taiwan. And left out... 
China and Russia. The virtual meeting is in- and that's an example of how the Biden administration might seek to show China that it too is interested in elevating Taiwan's status on the world stage. So, Josh, with tensions continuing to boil away between China, the US and Taiwan, this issue looks like it won't be going anywhere anytime soon. I förmån så valdes ju jag av riksdagen till statsminister för att bilda en koalitionsregering med företrädare för That was Magdalena Andersson announcing that she had just been sworn in as Sweden's first ever female prime minister. Now this was a huge deal. When the decision was announced, the parliament erupted into applause and gave her a standing ovation. But the celebrations didn't last long. A short-lived triumph. Sweden's new prime minister resigned Wednesday hours after being appointed. Just six and a half hours after being sworn in, Anderson was gone, forced to resign by the parliament. Wait, so the Swedish parliament turned against her on the same day it voted for her to become prime minister. I mean, how does that even happen? Well, you might remember that we looked at the growing polarisation of European politics on the wrap-up a few episodes ago. Effectively, what we concluded there is that major parties are losing votes while minor parties are gaining power, which has resulted in a lot of unstable coalition governments across the continent. And that was precisely the case with Prime Minister Anderson. Despite her party, the left-leaning Social Democratic Party, Having the most seats in Sweden's parliament, it fell way short of a majority. So Anderson had to enter into talks with four other parties, some of which were left-leaning, some of which were centrist, and eventually she managed to form this mishmash of a government. Late last night, she secured a deal with the left party, and then this morning the centre party said it would also not vote against her, which meant that Anderson won the vote with just one vote's margin. Her first task was to pass a budget that set out her government's priorities. Only problem was, one of the parties in her government refused to sign on to it. They instead sided with the opposition to pass an alternative budget that was drafted by a far-right party called the Sweden Democrats. And as a result, her government imploded. And within a few hours, she had to resign. Yeah, well, that seems like a really big deal. I mean... When you think of Sweden, you're typically thinking of progressive politics. So how do we get to a point where a budget drafted by the far right is adopted in a country like Sweden? Yeah, I think many Swedes will be asking themselves that question too, especially when you consider just how extreme the far right Swedish Democrats are. So the party was started by former members of the Nazi SS, and it's previously endorsed the KKK. As a result, until recently, it was widely condemned and had very little support. But things really changed after the 2015 EU migration crisis, and this is something that we have repeatedly come back to on the wrap-up. So during the crisis, Sweden accepted more refugees per capita than any other European nation, including Germany. Now, there was considerable backlash to the decision in Sweden, and the Sweden Democrats saw a chance to go mainstream. 
They rebranded themselves and with the help of a disinformation campaign conducted by the Russian government, they ended up becoming the third largest party in the parliament. It wasn't quite the result they'd hoped for, but the Sweden Democrats stole significant ground in this election and its supporters were keen to advertise their success. Their presence in the parliament over the last few years has really dragged the political debate in Sweden to the right. A few years ago, many Swedes would have been too embarrassed to admit their support for the Sweden Democrats, but not anymore. As with other parties like it across Europe, its tough line on immigration and cultural identity is connecting with many Swedes who no longer support... The... Opposition parties have also begun to cooperate with the Swedish Democrats, and that's what enabled the far-right party to get its budget passed instead of Anderson's governments. Mm, okay, I see. I mean, so now that Sweden is without a prime minister, what happens next? Well, a new PM is actually due to be chosen this morning, so keep an eye out on the news today. And believe it or not, people say there's actually a good chance Anderson could be selected again. How is that possible? Well, you see, even if her policies don't have majority support, personally, she's quite popular. And some minor parties have said, well, we'll vote for her to become PM again, but we won't join a formal coalition or guarantee support for her policies. And that raises the question, if she does win, will she be able to govern effectively? I mean, she's going to be leading a minority government that's forced to bargain with seven other parties each time she wants to pass a law. And here's the danger in that it may play directly into the Sweden Democrats' message that traditional politics in Sweden is broken. And with a general election in less than 10 months, that could boost support for the far-right party, giving it more control over the future of one of Europe's most progressive nations. Well, that's all for this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week's episode will be part five of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. Rhiannon will take a closer look at the world's largest democracy, India. Hindu nationalism and authoritarianism are on the rise there, so we'll unpack why that's happening and what it means for the region as a whole. Yeah, definitely give it a listen. It'll be a fascinating case study. But until then, follow our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.